Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. As I said last episode, we'll be diving straight into the prehistory of Africa and the origins of the peoples of the continent. Anyways, there'll be no podcasty type things to say during this episode, so let's just jump right in. Episode 2, Languages and Prehistory. The story of today's episode begins around 315,000 years ago. This is the approximate date of when Homo sapiens, or modern human beings, first emerged on this planet. It is true that beings similar to us had existed prior, but this is when the first truly modern people, people we'd recognize as the same as us today, took their first steps. It was once believed that modern Homo sapiens originated in Ethiopia around 200,000 years ago. As the hypothesis goes, a small group of humans lived in a lush land along the Omo River, This land's climate served as a prehistoric Garden of Eden, and allowed these humans to flourish and grow in number. Eventually, however, the region grew unable to support such a large population, and eventually some of these humans were forced to leave. They populated other parts of Africa, and then eventually the entire world. However, more recent archaeological finds have poked a hole in this hypothesis, and instead supports a new location in Africa as the location of humanity's genesis. In 1991, an archaeological team in Jebel Irhud, Morocco, uncovered a treasure trove of human remains. These remains, which you can now see in the Rabat Archaeological Museum, were initially thought to be from one of our closest relatives, the Neanderthals. However, further analysis revealed that these remains were from anatomically modern humans. And this was an incredibly shocking discovery, as these remains were more than 100,000 years older than the oldest indisputably human remains at the time. This discovery revolutionized the way that people thought about the origins of humanity. Rather than originating from one group in just one region of East Africa, the birth and evolution of humanity occurred at a continental scale throughout a complex series of interaction between groups of pre-modern humans across the regions surrounding the Sahara. During this primordial period of Africa, the Sahara was not the inhospitable arid wastes of today. Rather, it was a vast grassland, resembling what we now call a savanna. The animals of the African savanna that we know today lived here too, like hippos, giraffes, wildebeest, and the extinct cow known as the aurochs. Of course, humans lived alongside these animals, composing a widely dispersed population of interbreeding groups. These groups likely migrated with the herds of the animals, which they hunted, crossing back and forth across the vast grasslands. One very important man lived this lifestyle, and while we'll never know what he called himself, Today, we call him Y-chromosomal Adam. If you're listening to this podcast and have a Y-chromosome, you have a little bit of Adam's DNA in you. This is because he is the patrilineal ancestor of every human being on Earth. That is to say, he is your father's 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 father's... Well, you get the idea. The same concept applies to mitochondrial Eve, the matrilineal relative of every human being alive today. Your mother's mother's mother's... Yeah. This shouldn't be confused with the biblical story of Adam and Eve, 
as neither of these individuals were really the first modern human being to exist. Nor were they a couple, and we know that, based on the studying of human genetics, they existed thousands of years and likely miles apart. Rather, it just means that with these two individuals, there is a little part of them in every human being that lives today. When people say phrases like, we are all African, this is what they're referring to. No matter who you are, or where you're from, or your ethnicity or background, you are descended eventually, if you go back far enough, from Africans like mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. By 280,000 years ago, we know for certain that humans lived in the Sahara grassland and its surrounding regions. Approximately 260,000 years ago, we have the first evidence of humans spreading outside of this region, in this case into southern Africa. A fossilized skull in Florespad, South Africa, was, like the Jebel Irhud remains, long believed to belong to a close human relative, the Homo heidelbergensis. However, further analysis revealed that the skull was from a Homo sapien. Who these ancient southern Africans were, and who is descended from them, is unknown, as the extent that their descendants still exist is unclear. As 150,000 years ago, the first migration of which we have any genetic knowledge of occurred. This was the migration of the ancestors of the modern Khoisan people, from eastern into southern Africa. We're going to talk a lot about migrations during this episode, so I'd like to clear up a couple of misconceptions about human migration in general. Often, people will use an outdated theory of anthropology to claim that human migrations essentially consisted of genocide. For example, it was long believed that the migration of modern humans into Asia and Europe amounted to a genocide of the Neanderthals who lived there before them. This understanding of human history seems tempting at first. After all, we know that there used to be Neanderthals in Europe and Asia, and we know that modern humans made contact with these Neanderthals, and we know that there are now no more Neanderthals. Add to that the occasional fossil of Neanderthals which turn up with evidence of being killed with weapons, and, well, it seems to just make sense. However, as tempting as this understanding can seem, it's simply wrong. Firstly, the theory ignores that, in a sense, Neanderthals never truly did go extinct. Most Europeans and Asians have a percentage of Neanderthal DNA that ranges from 2-6% to of their genome, with some individuals having 10% or more. This implies that there was a fairly prevalent practice of interbreeding between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. At least part of the reduction of the Neanderthal population came from absorption into Homo sapien populations, rather than from any type of violent extermination. The remaining Neanderthal population reduction can also more likely be explained by out-competition for resources than by outright violence. As for the Neanderthal remains with evidence of weapon wounds, well, there's evidence for violence in all time periods, and prehistory is no different. But this was more likely caused by small-scale incidents rather than any prolonged extermination of Neanderthals. This isn't to say that migrations are peachy and non-violent and that everyone's happy. Just that the equation of migrations and genocide is entirely anthropologically inaccurate. As a rule, this applies to other migrations throughout human history as well. And I'll call back to this when we talk about migrations later in this episode and in future episodes. Typically, after a large migration or invasion, the people who lived there prior are integrated into the society and culture of the migrating group, or vice versa. The popularity of this understanding of history as genocide emerged among early European proto-anthropologists in the colonial era. If I were to speculate why this theory caught on, I assume it's because colonial powers wanted to justify the atrocities and conquests of the era by acting as if genocide is just a normal part of human nature. But that's just my conjecture. 
Anyways, the reason for that whole spiel on migration is so that you don't assume that the ancestors of the modern Khoisan eliminated the people like the Florispad man. Rather, they likely interbred with them and integrated them into their culture. Regardless, genetic and linguistic evidence shows that the ancestors of the modern Khoisan people populated a wide area throughout southern Africa, from modern Tanzania and the Great Lakes all the way down to the Cape of Good Hope. The first modern humans migrated into West Africa around 130,000 years ago. Now, we know almost nothing about this migration, as there's very little fossil evidence regarding the humans who lived here. Although there is some evidence to suggest that interbreeding occurred between West African Homo sapiens and other human subspecies, similar to the interbreeding with Neanderthals that occurred in Asia and Europe. Additionally, during this time, the first humans decided to leave the purview of our podcast, as this time period is when the first major migrations occurred out of Africa. These humans who left began to spread across Asia, Oceania, Europe, and eventually the Americas. All groups of people who exist outside of Africa are descended from this small group that migrated off the continent at this time. And as a result, there is more genetic diversity among Africans than among every other group of humans on Earth combined. From 130,000 to 70,000 years ago, the vast Central African rainforests were gradually settled by a collection of different groups of people, known today as the Pygmies. These people are most well known for their incredibly short stature. Because of this shared trait, scientists long believed that the various Pygmy groups of Central Africa were descended from a single base group. However, genetic studies have shown that the stature of the Pygmy peoples comes from multiple genetic sources implying that they each came from multiple groups and that the shortness of stature evolved after their settlement in the Central African rainforest, not before. Due to the dense rainforest canopy ceiling lowering vitamin D intake, people who produce less human growth hormones had an easier time living in this rainforest. Some people try to depict the pygmies as a relic of the past, or primitive peoples, but this is entirely unfair. Rather, these peoples are perfectly adapted for the environment in which they lived, and were thus able to thrive in a harsh climate where nobody else could. For more than 65,000 years, these people were the uncontested masters of the Central African rainforest, and so I'd say that they're definitely worthy of our respect. Throughout this period, there was a gradual drying of the Earth's climate that corresponded with the end of the Ice Age. By 10,000 years ago, the Sahara was too dry for any major human habitation, and by 5,000 years ago, it resembled the arid dunes of sand that we know today. The people who once populated the old Sahara grasslands migrated out in all directions, and the culture of hunter-gatherers on each side of this vast desert, once in relatively frequent contact, were now permanently severed from each other. At this point, humans are now fully spread throughout the African continent, and it's time for us to talk about the five major linguistic families that populate the continent today. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame Stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Linguistic families are incredibly important to the study of human history, as they allow us to broadly group cultures together into larger sections and trace the spread of peoples before written history. So, 
Before we begin, I'd like to touch a little bit on what exactly is a linguistic family. Linguistic families are large, overarching groups of languages that share a common ancestral language. For example, the language I'm speaking to you in is English, which is part of the Indo-European language family, along with French, Russian, Persian, and Hindi. Now, obviously, these languages are all very different from each other, but they all originate from the same ancient root. To get a bit deeper, there are also subfamilies of languages, and this is where we begin to see some genuine similarities. English is in the Germanic family, along with German, Danish, Dutch, and a few others. English is a bit of a weird example because a lot of our vocabulary comes from French and other Romance languages, but overall, English and German are fairly similar in terms of grammar and vocabulary, at least compared to, say, German and Persian. So, when I refer to families, that means a big overarching group of languages that have a common origin, and subfamilies are much closer groups that have a fairly recent point of divergence and are as a result fairly similar. Got it? Awesome. The first of these families is one we've already discussed, the Khoisan family in southern Africa. We'll come back to them in a little bit, I promise, but I'm going to skip ahead for now. Stretching in a wide band from Somalia to Mauritania in the north of east of Africa is a family known as Afro-Asiatic. As the name implies, this language family straddles the boundary of Africa and Asia. You've probably heard of some of the languages spoken in this family, like Arabic, Hebrew, and Somali. Today, Arabic is one of the most widely spoken languages in Africa, but 5,000 years ago, it was not spoken on the continent at all. The Afro-Asiatic family can be divided into five subfamilies. The first of this is the Semitic family, which includes Arabic and Hebrew, but also several languages indigenous to the African continent. One of these languages was Ge'ez, the ancestor to many of the languages of Ethiopia. Ge'ez first developed as a sort of Creole language between the languages of Southern Arabia and the Horn of Africa. As a result, the language mixed many features from both Semitic languages and from another Afro-Asiatic family, the Cushitic languages. It is also still used as a clerical language by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, kind of like how Catholic churches still often use Latin. The system of writing used by these languages is also called Ge'ez, and I'll be posting some images of this unique script on historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com for anyone interested. Like I mentioned, Ge'ez is descended from a mixture of Semitic and Cushitic influences. The Cushitic subfamily is located entirely in eastern Africa, and contains languages like Somali, Oromo, Beja, and Afar. This language family is one of the oldest in the world, originating in the southern Nile Valley as far back as 11,000 years ago. In the region of modern Sudan, the people of the Nubian civilization spoke a Cushitic language, and despite most of the country today speaking Arabic, there still remain about 600,000 speakers of languages descended from this ancient tongue. Additionally, while the Semitic language of Amara is the official language of Ethiopia, it is actually not the language with the most native speakers from that country. That title belongs to Oromo, a Cushitic language. Oromo is one of the most widely spoken African languages, and I was shocked to learn that it, and not Somali, was the most widely spoken Cushitic language. Before we move on, I'd like to make a quick side note about the language of the ancient Egyptians. So, we know for certain that they spoke an Afro-Asiatic language. However, scholars often debate whether or not the language should be considered Semitic, Cushitic, or something else entirely. Ancient Egyptian is still spoken today as a liturgical language by a group of Christians in modern Egypt known as the Copts, and is definitely in a family completely separate from either Semitic or Cushitic languages. 
but we're not really sure just how similar liturgical Egyptian is to the language of the pharaohs, and that's a subject of intense debate. The next subfamily we'll be examining is Berber. Berber languages are spoken throughout northern Africa and central Sahara. While today they're often written using the Latin alphabet or the Arabic script, some people still use an indigenous script known as the uh, Tifi Nag. I think it's pronounced that way. I spent, like, legitimately an hour trying to figure out how it was pronounced, and I'm still only, like, 60% sure I got it right. Anyways, while Arabic has supplanted these languages as the most common language in North Africa, the Berber languages remain alive and well, with millions of native speakers. In fact, both Morocco and Algeria recognize Berber as a co-official language of the country. Deciding where each Berber language begins and ends is pretty hard, as the issue has been politicized to either promote unity or disunity among Berber populations in the past and present, and I'm not going to take a side on that issue either way. Generally speaking, Berber can be divided into four subcategories. The most spoken by an incredibly wide margin is Northern Berber. Speakers of Northern Berber can be found in the Atlas Mountains, throughout cities on the Algerian and Tunisian coasts, and in Western Libya. Tuareg, or southern Berber, is geographically thinly spread across the Sahara Desert, as well as in the more populous regions of northern Mali and Niger. Finally, there are tiny populations of Berber speakers in Mauritania, known as western Berber, and in the Siwa oasis of Egypt, known as eastern Berber. Throughout the eastern Sahel, people speak an Afroasiatic subfamily of dozens of languages, known as Chadic. These languages are largely pretty small, with relatively few speakers, with one enormous exception. That exception is Hausa, the most widely spoken African language. Located throughout northern Nigeria and southern Niger, Hausa is spoken as a native language by more than 100 million people, with a significant number of second language speakers as well. For some perspective, that's more Hausa speakers in the world than German speakers. So if you want to try and learn a new language, maybe Hausa should be on your list. Anyways, Hausa is actually quite different from the rest of the Chadic languages. This is the case because, as the language spread throughout history, the Hausa incorporated many words from the people they culturally absorbed, and these words remain in the language today. Anyways, because we're going to be talking about the Hausa a lot in future episodes, I'm going to end our discussion of them there. The final branch of the Afroasiatic family is its smallest, the Amodic languages. These languages are confined to a small corner of southeastern Ethiopia, and branched off from the Cushitic languages. We don't know exactly when the separation occurred, but we know that it happened around the time that the pastoral lifestyle of livestock herding first arose in this region. We know this to be the case because the Omotic and Cushitic languages share words for plants and honey, things that are incredibly important to hunter-gatherers, but do not share words for things related to livestock, more important to pastoral peoples. And that's the last Afroasiatic subfamily. Our next family of languages is called Nilo-Saharan. This language is hard to define and a kind of controversial. Because of the very loose relationship between languages and the family, some have said that it is a wastebasket family, or a family invented by linguists who just want a place to put all the languages that don't fit neatly into any other group. However, the mainstream linguistic and anthropological communities accept the existence of this family, and therefore so will I, for the sake of this podcast. Anyways, this family is known as Nilo-Saharan due to the language's suspected origin between the Nile River Valley and the Sahara Desert. After doing a lot of research on the topic, there seems to be no consensus on how exactly this family should be divided. So, for the purposes of the podcast, I'll be using the work of linguist Joseph Greenberg, the man who first coined the term Nilo-Saharan. So, the Nilo-Saharan family is composed of three subfamilies, 
These are the Komus languages, three small languages spoken around the border of Ethiopia and Sudan, Songhai Saharan languages, which are inexplicably thousands of miles away from every other Nilo-Saharan language, and the Nilotic languages, or pretty much everything else in the family. Because of the existence of the Songhai languages in West Africa, we can infer that a Nilo-Saharan family either once encompassed a much larger area, stretching from west into eastern central Africa, than it does today, or that a migration of Nilo-Saharan-speaking peoples ended up in the middle of the West African Sahel. Look, basically, there's a lot of mysteries surrounding this language family, and it's made even more complicated by the fact that a bunch of linguistic scholars argue that Songhai languages are just straight up not Nilo-Saharan. So, what about the Nilotic languages? Well, we know a lot more about this language group than the Songhai. We know that the ancestors of today's Nilotic peoples almost certainly originated in the Nile Valley, likely in modern South Sudan. We also know that some, but not all, Nilotic people migrated southward. We also know that some, but not all, of the Nilotic people migrated southward, creating a long band of land that stretches from South Sudan all the way down to northern Tanzania inhabited by Nilotic speakers. Along with their unique language group, these Nilotic peoples have incredibly unique appearances as well, as they are well known for their tall stature and incredibly dark skin. Some examples of Nilotic languages include the Dinka language of modern South Sudan and the Maasai language of southern Kenya. Finally, we're moving on to the most geographically widespread African language family, the Niger-Congo. Depending on how you decide what is or is not a language, this family contains more members than any other language family on Earth, containing more than 1,500 distinct languages. This language family became what we know today around 6,000 years ago, when the drying of the Sahara forced the people who lived there to migrate southward into Western Africa. These people combined the languages that they spoke with the languages of the locals, forming what we now know as the Niger-Congo languages. While this family contains dozens of subfamilies, I'm going to focus on the two largest categories of the language, each of which contains about half of the family speakers today. There is Niger-Congo A, which contains languages spoken around the Atlantic coast of Africa and inland along the Sahel region, and Niger-Congo B, more commonly known as Bantu. Bantu languages include some of the most prominent tongues on the African continent, like Swahili and Mandinka. Bantu languages originated in an area around the border of modern Cameroon and Nigeria, and for now, that's where we're going to leave these Bantu-speaking peoples. However, just know that in the future, and by the future I mean around 5000 BC, they're going to spread gradually throughout the southern half of the continent, from the Congo to Tanzania and eventually all the way down to South Africa, displacing or integrating the Pygmies and Khoisan people that lived there before. As I said, this migration started around 5000 BC and eventually concluded around 580, so just keep that in the back of your mind. As we talk about the ancient history of Africa, there's totally a gradual migration going on in Central Africa right now, and that's where we're going to leave it off. Khoisan peoples are present throughout the southern half of Africa, Pygmy in the central rainforest region, Nilo-Saharan in the central east, Afro-Asiatic throughout northern and eastern Africa, and finally, Niger-Congo speakers in the west, for now. Anyways, that has been our episode for today. In two weeks, we'll get to explore the origins of one of the oldest and most famous civilizations in world history, ancient Egypt. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.